Good evening, everyone. Thanks, thanks, Richard. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and, uh, and I know it is for lots of people, is, is one that appears a number of times, and it also appears in a number of kind of different forms and formats, and it's a verse that we as a church have looked at on a number of occasions as, as well. And we first come across it in the, in the very second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and many of you will already kind of know the verse. I mean, it's Exodus 34, and it's verses 6 and 7, where God passes in front of Moses and Mount Sinai, and he declares this, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here is that verse again in Psalm 145. It's also in Psalm 103. And we're, we're going to, just after I speak, we're going to sing a version of Psalm kind of 145 and 103. Now, part of the reason why I love that verse and these verses is, is because they portray and they promote God's love and his mercy and, and his compassion. And that kind of sits well with me. I like to think about that. I, I like to talk about God in those terms. But you don't have to read much of the Bible to discover that there's more to God. There's more to his character and his activity that doesn't sit so well with lots of people. That isn't so acceptable or understandable or palatable or nice. Take the flood, for example. Everyone annihilated except eight people. Or even going back to those verses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, compassionate, then here's what's immediately after. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins or the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And so as we continue to engage honestly with Scripture, the challenges around this whole issue, they only intensify. So, for example, whenever the children of Israel finally get to the promised land, and we'll look at this later, but whenever they get to the promised land, after all their kicking and screaming, all their wandering, all their failures, all their mistakes, one of the first things that they're told to do by God is to go up under Joshua's leadership and attack the city of Ai, wiping out all the inhabitants. According to Joshua 8.25, 12,000 men and women fell that day. All the people of Ai. And it says, Joshua, who remember, wasn't to be afraid for the Lord his God was with him. Joshua did not hold back his hand, complete with javelin, and he destroyed all, or helped destroy all who lived in Ai. And, and into the bargain, he finally impaled the king of Ai on a pole and, and left his body there for all to see for an entire day. And so here's, here's the challenge, here's the paradox, and, and this is week three of this series. How do you reconcile and get your head round the paradox of a God who is terribly compassionate? A God who, who is compassionate, who's slow to anger, who's rich in love, who shows compassion and has compassion on one group of people, 
despite all their shortcomings and all their feelings and all their mistakes and all their failures, but then he commands that same group to show no compassion towards another group. How can a God of compassion and love order the annihilation of a whole people group? How do you deal with that? How do you even come to terms with that? How do you get your head around all the God-sanctioned violence and bloodshed you find in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament? Do we simply avoid it? Do we edit out all those difficult passages like Joshua 8 or Joshua 6, the walls of Jericho incident, which we will come back to in a moment? Do we, do we just avoid all passages like them where God appears far more terrible than he does compassionate? And this becomes even more difficult and frustrating whenever you realize and admit that the violence that we find in the Old Testament is used or has been used down through the centuries to somehow justify violence and kind of similar behavior ever since. Let me quote you this from Chris Wright's brilliant book, The God I Don't Understand. The centuries of Christendom have witnessed professing Christians right up to modern times using, using methods of conquest, torture, execution, horrifying punishments, and racist genocide, and claiming theological justification from their reading of the Old Testament, crusades against Muslims, genocide of North American Indians or Aboriginal Australians, apartheid against black South Africans, discrimination and violence against African Americans, expropriation of land from Palestinians, even attitudes towards Roman Catholics in Northern Ireland. In all cases, the first step is to declare the enemy to be cursed by God, just like the Canaanites. And after that, it becomes okay to just wipe them out or want to. That's strong. It's very strong, but it's not without substance. Now, one of the, the ways to quickly deal with this, and, and this is an idea that's been around for a very long time, is to jump on board with those who think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. I remember uh, studying early church history during my time in London and coming across a character called Marcion. And he strongly promoted this idea way back in the second century. And he was convinced that the God of the Old Testament, the creator God, was mostly angry and he was judgmental and it was, he was all fire and brimstone and war and vengeance. Whereas the God of the New Testament, the father of Jesus, was mostly good and gracious and altogether nicer. Two different gods. Now, Marcion was declared a heretic. But sometimes, if we're honest, and this is a pretty provocative quote I'm going to share with you from Krish Kandaya, many Christians live as if Marcion was actually right. Maybe we don't actually believe in two separate gods, but with the scant attention we give the Old Testament, we might as well. See, the problem is we can't pick and choose. We can't ignore the difficult passages 
because we find them too upsetting or too embarrassing or too hard to stomach. Because remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful. All of it. And ironically, if we manipulate God's word to ignore the uncomfortable passages for our own purposes, we tragically become like those who manipulate God's word in the other direction and then use those very passages to justify violence against others. So how do we respond to this tough material and what it communicates about God? Because those who want to dismantle the Christian faith, those who want to dismiss God as not that great, that God is nothing more than a delusion. They don't hold back on this subject. Here's a rather in-your-face quote from Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, an unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. It's aggressive. It's direct. But one of the reasons, and and there are many, why we we can't entertain this idea that the, the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New or why we mustn't skim the Old Testament and spend most of our time in the new, is for at least three reasons. The first, the Old Testament does have as much to say about the love and compassion of God as the New Testament. Hence the reason why I quoted some of those verses at the start, all from the Old Testament. Secondly, the New Testament has as much to say and more, in fact, about the anger and judgment of God. Jesus, third thing, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament never seem to be embarrassed by the Old Testament stories. Never reject them. Don't correct them. They may, in certain cases, move beyond them, but they accept them. Now, I know we could go into lots more detail in in each of those three, but I don't have time this evening, although if that is something you want to take further, then can I really encourage you, and and John and Rosemary, I must give you back your copy of this book, but uh, can I really encourage you to pick up a copy of Chris Wright's book, The God I Don't Understand, and if this whole issue intrigues you, read chapter four itself. Brilliant. But let's go back to the story of Joshua. Because it is a story that confronts us with the paradox of God's conflicting cruelty and compassion. Joshua was one of 12 spies. He was sent to check out the promised land. Ten of the spies came back to Moses and came back to the people and they they were negative. They came back with a whole pile of warnings. Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, saw things differently. They saw things positively. They encouraged the people, look, let's move into this land. Let's go. But unfortunately, the weight of numbers carried the day. Fear spread like wildfire, and the Israelites turned back. And as a result, they were destined to wander in the wilderness, in the desert, for another 40 years. 
But on that day, Joshua was hand-picked to succeed Moses because of his faith and because of his vision. He, he trusted God's power and provision. And as a result, he, along with Caleb, was shown mercy. And so, so Joshua was someone who knew all about the compassion of God who spared his life. And yet, he also got an insight into the terrifying anger of God who sentenced an entire generation to die in the desert, as Numbers 32 makes clear. And Joshua and Moses outlived, or Joshua and Caleb outlived Moses, and they outlived the cursed generation. And whenever they went back to the border of the Promised Land, 40, 40 years later, back to Canaan, they were faced once more with this challenge of taking possession of the inhabited land. And Joshua was once again faced with a God who was both terrible and compassionate. God had made it clear what he, he expected his people to do whenever they reached this point in time. Whenever they got to the border of the promised land, whenever they were about to move in, God had made it clear what they were to do. Deuteronomy 20 spells it out for us. In the cities of the nations that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them as the Lord your God commanded you. And so Joshua's task is clear. He's to undertake a kind of shock and awe exercise, which looks nothing short of genocide. We've already mentioned AI, but it's the fall of Jericho where this is seen most clearly. It's a story that's taught to and even acted out in many Sunday schools. And we all know what happened. Once round the walls for six days. Then on the seventh, seven times round. And after the seventh time round, blow your trumpets, shout loudly, and the walls will come tumbling down. And it happened. And then, and here's the bit we kind of like stop at with the kids. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Now God does show mercy in that situation. But a congregational participation. Who does God show mercy to? Rahab. And it is amazing and it's surely not accidental that the opening narrative in the book of Joshua describes not a conquest but a conversion. The story of Rahab is deeply moving. But, but what about everybody else in Jericho? What about everybody else? Because what happens next is the very raw story of a God-ordained systematic extermination of an entire city. Whatever happened to the promise to Abraham that through his offspring, God would bless the nations? This is the Joshua paradox. It's tough material. It's not surprising people run a mile from it. Probably mad to try to even 
confronted in a context like this. There are no easy answers. There's no simple explanations. But there are some clues that help, might help us navigate this paradox. Now, as you can appreciate, and please hear me in this, I cannot cover everything. I cannot address everything. All I can do in this context is offer some pointers, some reference points, and then encourage you to go away and reflect further, to read more and grapple with these issues, because we, we, we kind of need to. We, we really, really do need to grapple with this. So let's start with the first clue. The first thing that might help us here is to recognize that there is a prequel to what happens in, in Joshua 6. There, there is a backstory. There is history here. God didn't simply lose it with the Canaanites on a whim because he suddenly needed somewhere for his people to live. So sometimes that's almost the way it, it comes across as people talk about it. Centuries before, God had asked Abraham to leave Ur to go to a country that God would show him. That country was the land of Canaan. But God also told Abraham that for 400 years, your descendants, Abraham, are going to be strangers in a country that's not their own. And they're going to be enslaved and they're going to be ill-treated there. And God then promised to punish those who enslaved the Israelites. This is all in Genesis 15, right back at the start. And that in the fourth generation, Abraham's descendants would then come back to Canaan. So for four centuries, his descendants would be, if you like, homeless nomads. Slaves and strangers in one place, and then, as it turns out, starving wilderness campers in another. But eventually, eventually you will get to the promised land. Now during that time, and that is a long stretch of 40 decades, God gives the indigenous inhabitants of Canaan plenty of time to sort their lives out, to put their house in order, to show their true character. And why? One of the reasons is God is patient. He gives people a chance. Like if you jump into this story at Joshua 6, of course you're going to think that this, this God just acts in a whim. But so much has been going on beforehand. God has been holding back. But eventually God has to take action. He must. And he does. And that is the consistent message of the Bible. God is patient to the extreme. God is slow to anger. But eventually, there will come a time when he must act. He has to. And maybe it's God's extremes of patience that are actually far more striking than the extreme judgment that is so much more noticeable in our and everybody else's initial reading. You see, it's important when it comes to understanding Scripture, when it comes to understanding that we see the bigger picture, that there is a deeper story. Because if you start reading at the book of Joshua, you're going to be left confused and angry. And that kind of takes us on. So there is a pre there is a backstory, there is history. There has been time. God is patient. It takes us on to our second clue, which has to do with the place of judgment within any moral framework. Now stick with me here. You still with me, okay? It's warm in here. People are thinking I could just drift off to sleep. 
Stick with me. Do you know, when we hear stories of injustice, for any of us, when we hear stories of injustice where nothing seems to be being done, to be being done, when people get away with murder, literally, when people get away with all sorts of things, we feel aggrieved, don't we? We're disgusted. We're annoyed. Something within all of us cries out for justice to be done. We want people who do wrong to be held to account. We want them to be sentenced. We want them to be punished accordingly. Because without judgment and without accountability for how individuals or nations act, then there is no moral framework, and then universe, the universe just descends into even further, more anarchy. Now, that sense of, of outrage that's, that's within so many and that desire for justice often goes hand in hand with our expectation of a God who should hold this world to account. We don't expect people to get away with careless and wicked behavior forever. If there is a God, and I know there are those who just dismiss it totally, but if there is a God, then for many people, we want this God to do the right thing at some, we want this God to be a righteous judge. Sometimes whenever people read the, the Old Testament stories like Joshua 6, they set themselves up as judge and jury. And so they see God as the perpetrator of horrible violence. They see people as innocent victims. But what we need to do is we need to, in a sense, recalibrate our minds to see, hang on a minute, no. God is the judge. The people group that's being wiped out as the perpetrators of crimes against the victims unknown. Well, if we can see it like that, if we can understand it like that, where we want justice to be done for all the wrong things that people do, then we start seeing things a little differently. And so the question we have to ask whenever we come to the text like Joshua 6, Joshua 8 is, had these people done anything wrong? Were they wicked? Did they deserve judgment? Do they need to be held accountable for anything? And the answer is yes. Here's an insight from Deuteronomy 12. God's speaking to the Israelites about warning them not to make the same mistakes. And he says, listen, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And so God is not just clearing the land for his people. He is holding the Canaanites to account for atrocities committed. There is a moral framework in place, and God is in charge. And so the conquest was not human genocide. It was divine judgment. Now, not everybody is going to appreciate that, like that, accept that. I know that. Plus, that, that doesn't answer all our questions and address every problem. So, for example, we like the idea of God bringing judgment against the Canaanites for killing children. They absolutely should be held to account. Anybody that sacrifices kids. But then it seems strange that God commands and allows the Israelites to walk into a city and kill all the children. 
The third clue then brings us to look more closely at the uniqueness of these accounts themselves. These situations in AI and in Jericho are, are not the norm. They were never meant to be the norm. When you read scripture, you, you discover that the command to kill all the inhabitants of a city, it, it's limited. In other warfare contexts, God actually tells the Israelites, yeah, you walk in and you offer terms of peace. Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 16 provides evidence for that where it says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. The total destruction clause is reserved specifically to the judgment on the Canaanites and God specifically tells the Israelites, listen, don't use the Canaanite conquest as a model for how you should relate to other nations. This isn't the model. This is unique. And that kind of takes us on to fourth clue that we need to understand more of the cultural context of these passages. Chris, Chris Wright, again, deals with this brilliantly by making the point that the annihilation of cities and their inhabitants, it wasn't exclusive to Israel. This was, in fact, standard practice in the warfare of the day. And actually, if anything, God's instructions to offer terms of peace as he goes on was revolutionary. But the point is this, to quote Wright, in a fallen world where struggle for land involves war, and if the only kind of war at the time was the kind described in the Old Testament text, this was the way it had to be. Again, I know that doesn't answer all our questions, deal with all our dilemmas, but there are four clues that help us to think more deeply and widely about the subject. And, and this won't be the, the last time that we will face these paradoxes as we go through this series. But the Joshua paradox shows us a terribly compassionate God who displays incredible patience and mercy before bringing down extreme judgment. For 400 years he waits. 400 years he waits to see if the Canaanites would repent. And the thing is, God gives and always has done people chance after chance to do the right thing because he is gracious and compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's rich in love. But there comes a time, and this is where the tension is, but there comes a time because as Peter writes in the New Testament, the Lord is, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Indeed, he's patient with you, he is. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, but the day of the Lord will come. And it will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and, and everything that we do in it, everything will be laid to bear. Judgment is inevitable. God's patience does have a limit to its elasticity. He will ultimately show himself to be a God who is just and always has been consistent with his character. And when bad things happen, we want to know where God is and why he doesn't intervene. But when he does intervene, we question his right 
to execute judgment. We want judgment, we want justice, and yet at the same time, we don't want judgment. We don't want justice. And the point is this, and hopefully a bit of a helpful summary. God's patience is meaningless without his eventual judgment, but his judgment is merciless without his extreme patience. And so just because, as we are here now, just because God has not executed that kind of final judgment yet doesn't mean it isn't coming. And that, this, is, this is the hard stuff that I, that I find difficult to talk about. But just because God hasn't executed his final judgment yet doesn't mean it isn't coming. And even when we have understood those texts of terror a little better in Joshua in their context, we still see, we still sense, do you know something that is a terrible thing? It's a terrible thing to face the judgment of God. You see, what we witness in Joshua provides a glimpse of things to come for those who refuse to accept the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God. And so the very fact that these stories are included in the Bible may be a mercy in themselves because they're a warning that, listen, God's patience does not last forever. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is rich in love, but God is just. He is slow to anger. He's not averse to it. And there is coming a day and there is coming a time whenever everyone will stand before the judge of all the earth. And as Hebrews 10 reminds us, and with this I'm finished, this is hard. But for those who, who keep on sinning, for those who just keep on doing their own thing, quote, it will be a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is terribly compassionate. It's a paradox, but it's true, and we would be mad to dismiss it.